0: Welcome. So my name is uh, Dudley Rose. I'm the Associate Dean for Ministry Studies here at Harvard Divinity School, and it's my pleasure and privilege to welcome to you, uh, you too, our William James Lecture on Religious Experience tonight. Uh, Dean Hempton is traveling on a development trip to Asia, and he sends his regrets. Uh, Just two quick housekeeping uh, items first, Uh, and the first is to please turn off all cell phones or other communications devices so they don't interrupt the lecture, and this lecture is also webcast live, so I want to welcome uh, viewers uh, who are looking on their computer screens uh, wherever they may be. on this occasion, I would like to say a few words about the lecture and the benefactor who enabled it. it uh, the William James Lecture on Religious Experience uh, is annually given at the Harvard Divinity School. In 1968, money to endow the William James Lectures uh, at the school was given by the Lindsley Fund, which was established by Thayer Lindsley. Thayer Lindsley, uh, one of the 20th century's most prominent mind developers, was born in 1882. He graduated from Harvard with an AB in 1903, and his long-standing interest in William James as a teacher and in his religious ideas made it seem appropriate to the trustees of the John Linsley Fund to in 1968 established these lectures in honor of William James with particular reference to James's book The Varieties of Religious Experience. On October 14, 1970, the Divinity School inaugurated the annual lecture series and the William James Lectures on Religious Experience. Tonight's speaker, uh, Dr. Anthony B. Penn from Rice University is another highlight in the long list of distinguished speakers. Dr. <clears throat> Penn is no stranger to Harvard Divinity School, so welcome back. And I knew him when he was here as a student, and so it's that uh, long before he wrote all those 35 books. <laughs> we look forward uh, to Dr. Penn's lecture, The Problem, Soul, and Life Without Appeal. My colleague, Myra Rivera Rivera, Professor of Religion and uh, Latino-Latino Studies at HDS will be introducing uh, him as our speaker. Myra is a scholar of religion who specializes in the ethical dimensions of contemporary Christian thought. Her research interests include conceptions of race, gender, and coloniality, it integrates the study of philosophical and literary texts with particular attention to Latina, Latino, and Caribbean sources. She is affiliated with the Committee on Ethnicity Migration Rights, the Department of Romance Languages and Literature in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and American Studies in the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. Her most recent book, Poetics of the Flesh, published by Duke in 2015, explores the connections between theological, philosophical, and political metaphors of body and flesh. Professor Rivera furthermore authored The Touch of Transcendence, a post-colonial theology of God in 2007, which explores the relationship between models of divine otherness and ideas of interhuman difference, just to mention a few of her many publications. So without uh, further delay, Myra, would you please come to the podium and introduce our honored speaker for this evening? Thank you.
1: Good afternoon. It is really a privilege to introduce Anthony Pien tonight. Anthony Pinn is Agnes Cullen Arnold Professor of Humanities and Professor of Religious Studies at Rice University, the first African American to hold an endowed chair at that university. He holds a BA from Columbia University, an MDiv, and MA, MA from Harvard University. Professor Pinn has published extensively, they might actually be 35 or more, um, in a variety of topics and genres. I will mention only some of the works to give you a sense of the remarkable breadth of his work. Professor Pinn is well known for his contributions to black humanism, beginning with why Lord Suffering and Evil in Black Theology, published in 1995. And subsequently, by these hands, a documentary history of African-American humanism, published in 2001, African-American humanist principles, living and thinking like the children of Nerod in 2004 and the end of God Talk in African American Humanist Theology in 2012. These works explore the history and legacy of African American humanism as a religious orientation and offer theological and ethical explanations of black humanism to argue for a broader understanding of theology to include non-theist traditions. Terror and Triumph, the Nature of Black Religion, published in 2003, argues that black religion is fundamentally a quest for the meaning of human existence against the backdrop of a history of dehumanization and terror experienced by African Americans. Pins, embodiment, and the new shape of Black Theological Thought, published in 2010, proposes a body-centered approach to theological thought and argues for prioritizing the body's meaning and lived experiences as a starting point for doing theology. I should also mention a novel entitled The New Disciples. In addition to being a prolific and creative scholar, Professor Pin seems to be everywhere at the same time, addressing academic and lay audiences and still managing to be a committed mentor to graduate students and junior colleagues to which I can witness personally. It is an honor to welcome Professor Pinn to deliver this year's William James Lecture entitled, The Problem, Soul, and Life Without Appeal. Welcome. Good
2: afternoon think you could do a little better than that. I traveled all the way from Houston, and it's warm there. Good afternoon. I encountered a few of you before this afternoon, and you were generous, and you welcomed me back, and it made me think. I'm 30 years deep in this place. Harvard has been an influential element of my intellectual self-understanding and my work for 30 years now, and some of those who taught me in this room are no longer with us, uh, Ronald Thieman, Richard Niebuhr, and my advisor Gordon Kaufman, but others are still present. I, as an MDiv student, as I was thinking about MDiv programs, I, I don't think I would have come here if it had not been for Preston Williams. Before getting a letter in the mail, yes or no, Fred Lucas drove me from New York here just to talk to Preston Williams. And it was in his office upstairs that it, it occurred to me, this might not be such a bad place to be. that I'll get to think some thoughts. Understand, I was desperate to find a theological way to address what seemed to me an inhospitable world. And it seemed like this might be the place. 1982, before I met him, I met him. Uh, Cornell West. I was an undergraduate desperate to make some sense of this, and a professor had me read you. And that for me was transformative. So, no, thank you. Thank you. Much love. But I'm, I'm delighted that you've decided to spend a little of your afternoon with me. What I'd like to do is wrestle a bit with someone who has haunted me as I moved from Buffalo to New York and New York to. Cambridge, W.E.B. Du Bois. So we'll get to it. Before Du Bois described the double consciousness of African Americans, he first announced the cultural climate, or prevailing ethos shaping the historical moment. The problem of the 20th century, he writes in the forethought to the souls of black folk, is the problem of the color line. Reiterated numerous times throughout the book, this short but forceful line captured the racial logic of the United States post-Civil War and shaped the public imagination of and expectations for the nation moving forward. It articulated a sense of embodied experiences wrapped in the garb of racial disregard and its prophetic quality spoke what millions knew but could not articulate safely. This color line theory jibes so well with documented activities of a pervasive anti-black racism, it became a frequently employed hermeneutic in both popular and academic analysis. While undeniably impactful and considered by many a complete framing of post-reconstruction developments, what the color line pronouncement points to is only one dimension of a dualism, what Du Bois references as the Negro problem. At the start of the first essay in Souls, of our spiritual strivings, Du Bois reflects, between me and the other world, there is ever an unasked question. Unasked by some through feelings of delicacy, by others through difficulty of rightly framing it, all nevertheless flutter around it. They approach me in a half-hesitant sort of way, eye me curiously or compassionately, and then Instead of saying directly, how does it feel to be a problem, they say, I know an excellent colored man in my town. Or, do not those southern outrages make your blood boil? At these, I smile, or I'm interested, or reduce the boiling to a simmer, as the occasion may require. To the real question, how does it feel to be a problem, I answer seldom a word. How does it feel to be a problem? With this question, Du Bois highlights the second dimension of the dualism, what I will call the problem soul, and would describe as a sensibility or posture toward the cultural climate of a historical moment defined by a vicious logic of racial difference as dangerous. My read of Du Bois suggests not that double consciousness causes the problem soul. But rather, the problem soul is prior to the Negro problem. It, the problem soul, involves positioning of intent expressed through the African-American's existential movement in the world as a troubled and troubling figure, trapped by conflicting identities. While important to the larger argument, the problem soul has received limited consideration, and as a consequence, our understanding of Du Bois's aim with souls, his most popular text, is truncated. The Negro problem, framed as a cultural ontology of two-ness, is addressed in terms of social, material, and political alterations to public and private life, bent on making African Americans whole and functioning citizens. The problem soul, the diagnostic of concern to us this evening, however, entails a web of psychological, philosophical, social, theological, and effective vantage points, constituting a posture that troubles such correctives to violent othering. Hence, understanding the problem soul requires a different strategy, a different framing. I suggest adaption of William James's sick soul as heuristic for exploring the sensitivity to moral evil and the particular posture toward the world Du Bois intends by the problem soul. Suggesting the possibility of such a link doesn't push an unreasonable intellectual connection. To the contrary, Du Bois' problem soul viewed in relationship to James's sixth soul merely tags a connection that extends beyond more widely recognized overlap. My effort entails unpacking what biographers note in terms of Du Bois's use of popular psychological categories of two-ness, which is shadowed by James's hidden self or subconscious. Both the former and the latter escape our full grasp, just as Du Bois's duality avoids our efforts at unification. Ross Posnick puts it well when he says, with his poetic genius, Du Bois turns skepticism of stable selfhood into an indelible image of the African-American's anguished psychic striving. Before moving on, I want to first acknowledge a point that will come up again and that relates to the anguished striving noted by Posnick. Simply put, the problem sold with first read might be thought to advise a nihilistic or fatalistic turn However, this is far from what Du Bois intends. Rather than that, Du Bois can be said to operate consistent with moralistic, absurdist sensibilities later exhibited by writers such as Nella Larson and Richard Wright and theorized by Albert Camus. There is no surrender, no nihilism in statements by Du Bois such as this, the travail, he writes, of souls whose burden is almost beyond the measure of their strength, but who bear it in the name of a historic race, in the name of this land of their father's fathers, and in the name of human opportunity. The no to demand associated with the cultural climate marking this description of post-slavery life is echoed in the no to false promises of redemption recorded by writer Nella Larson's character Helga Crane in Quicksand, and the no to racial terror written by Richard Wright in terms of his life, and that of his character, Fred Daniels, in The Man Who Lived Underground, and in the perpetual labor of the absurd hero, Sisyphus, endorsed by Camus. This consideration is important because attention to a moralist absurdist sensibility helps clarify the nature of the problem soul and aids in our surfacing the call for perpetual struggle rather than nihilism, central to Du Bois' diagnosis of what he calls strange experience and what he sums up in souls. According to Du Bois, the system of slavery resulted in global cooperation premised on material need and resource guided by metaphysical stipulations. One marked Africans as inferior in every respect and another extended the correctness of this argument through violent coercion of African Americans into believing themselves inferior. The goal of this debased epistemology and dwarfed ontology is control over docile bodies, tame minds, and the nation's socio-political and economic infrastructure. Freedom troubles this subject object logic in that it disrupts what were once assumed stable cultural identities by forcing a rethinking of the African American's occupation of time and space. The consequence of this rethinking is double consciousness, two warring cultural identities African Americans attempt to hold together in a historical context ill-equipped to grasp and appreciate such complexity, and that such unification challenges the multidimensional status quo upon which U.S. society rested for so many decades. This dilemma is the birth of the existential Negro problem, framed by life within a context of close but troubled proximity, without old methods of regulation, played out on geography of entitlement and opportunity marred by exclusion. In the essay of the Dawn of Freedom, Du Bois offers a question capturing this problem. What shall be done with the Negroes? First addressed in an expansive and systematic manner through the Freedmen's Bureau, the answer to that nagging question involved judicial structures, economic opportunity, political involvement, educational organizations, and social maneuvering. This approach entailed an assumption that double consciousness is addressed best through integration and material intervention, thereby tackling the basis of disregard, countering assertions of inferiority, and opening access to life, liberty, and happiness. Nonetheless, the failure of this tactic is clear in that for so many the African-American had not been reconstituted but simply and inconveniently repositioned. In a word, the formerly enslaved were visible in an altered way but this did not constitute substantial change in sentiment toward them. For this much all men know, writes Du Bois, despite compromise, war, and struggle, the Negro is not free. He outlines the situation by vivid sociological and historical narratives regarding life in particular regions of the nation where he believed the Negro problem most graphic. Effort to foster a better and truer self, as he puts it, produces frustration and that it involves what Du Bois references as the contradiction of double aims. Appealing to a religious vocabulary, he expresses this wasted effort as wooing false gods and involving false means of salvation. There's a relationship here to tragic soul life by means of which Du Bois presents through the spirituals and religious rituals an African-American theological response to these existential conditions of life. Impact, if any, is short-lived, as Du Bois hints at through the fiction undergirding the spirituals. Creating synergy between past and present, these songs wish for a future that does not come. Hence, they are for Du Bois sorrow songs, hauntingly beautiful sorrow songs. The spiritual communities in which these songs were housed primarily and the ministers who led those communities failed to impact the cultural climate that suffocated their aspirations. While Du Bois might know something of the genre, before this transformation, he knew nothing of the context of creation, nothing of the hush harbors, nothing of the trauma of enslavement that provided the effective quality of the narratives. And he believed little of the theological assumptions embedded in lyrical content. What he did know and what he did experience is this. Each attempt to demand something of the world is met with frustration, and so the Negro problem persist. What should be done with the Negro presupposes a prior consideration. How does it feel to be a problem? It's with respect to this question Du Bois presents the problem soul, which is conditioned, informed, and shaped by a particular cultural climate. What Du Bois references as a new philosophy of life associated with the technologies and strategies of racial deep disregard. It is this philosophy that articulates the soul life of the nation in which, by definition, African-Americans are supposed to participate. As claimed earlier, William James's description of the sick soul lends itself to framing the problem soul. In suggesting this exploration, I'm concerned to apply this category beyond the world he describes, beyond his framing of religion, beyond the individual concerns that mark the varieties of religious experience, and appealing to James's sick soul within this larger context, my aims are to highlight the details of this posture named the problem soul and thereby capture something of its sensibility and the cultural climate it stands against. Prior to the sick soul, James describes a healthy mindedness marked by optimism regarding circumstances, seeing them as generally good despite all this stance takes two forms. The first, which is involuntary, defines an immediate emotion of happiness regarding the conditions of life. The second is systematic healthy-mindedness and entails conceptualization of life in a general sense as good. Despite what the name healthy-minded might suggest, it's a narrow-minded approach that works with a limited range of experience. As Charles Taylor notes, the terminology used by James, morbid, sick, and healthy, would suggest a preference for the latter, healthy-mindedness. However, this isn't the case. James Taylor writes, identifies with the sick here, not just that this is where he classes himself without, of course, explicitly saying so, but also in that he sees the sick as being more profound and insightful. As a religious attitude, healthy-mindedness is Practiced as we according to James divert our attention from disease and death as much as we can and the slaughterhouses and the indecencies without end on which our life is founded are huddled out of sight and never mentioned So that the world we recognize officially in literature and in society is a poetic fiction far handsomer and cleaner and better than the world that really is therefore It is a willful determination to bracket off what is unpleasant and to present the world through a hermeneutic of harmony and comfort. For the healthy-minded, through the exercise of a childlike happiness, the world is projected as she needs it to be, marked by progression that isn't inevitable, but that is harnessed to a deep sense of possibility. James finds examples of healthy-mindedness in new thought camps, known to highlight the good by preaching potentiality and Possibility while, in his words, deliberately minimizing evil. The healthy minded, in a religious sense, experience conversion as the once born and easy attention to happiness and goodness. Over against this posture is one in which evil is recognized and confronted. To the extent evil is understood as being constitutive of the world, the soul that views evil as pervasive and fundamental is the sick soul. It is sensitive to the troubling reality of the universe and our relationship to it. And in a philosophical sense, it offers a deeper knowledge of existence. Despite the tone of this description, James highlights a positive dimension to the perspective offered by the sick soul. The lucidity, a penetrating and guiding awareness, marking it is not to be dismissed and should be valued over against fragile fiction embraced by the healthy-minded. It, unlike the more restricted view of the healthy mind, it probes the world and recognizes the self as a battlefield. Still, this is no reason to turn away and take an easier path. Let us not simply cry out in spite of all appearances, cautions James, hooray for the universe. God is in heaven, all is right with the world. Let us see rather whether pity, pain, and fear and the sentiment of human helplessness may not open a profounder view and put into our hands a more complicated key to the meaning of the situation. Framed in terms of the individual and her contact with the world, the healthy-minded seeks a sustainable happiness in the face of its contradiction. While the sick soul finds no benefit in such a delusion and doesn't seek a higher unity, the sick soul knows, in James's words, back of everything is the great specter of universal death what appears good is equally and quickly matched by its negation. This is not to suggest sick souls are without the possibility of conversion. Those deeply sensitive to a world in suffering can be twice born. That is, they can change to a different perspective on the world, one marked by consciousness affording new consideration of the good and happiness. However, conversion is mere possibility, not probability, because the sick soul needs not surrender or collapse in the face of misery. As James remarks, some won't be converted because they are never so exhausted with the struggle of the sick soul that they give up in the face of crisis. Some have, Varieties proclaims, drunk too deeply of the cup of bitterness ever to forget its taste. Furthermore, there is an extreme pessimism that can prevent conversion due to a pathological melancholy. This is a psychological sense of loss blocking optimism whereby the subject of melancholy is forced in spite of himself to ignore that all good whatever. For him, it may no longer have the least reality. The sick soul is a heuristic sheds light on the problem soul, but the two are far from identical. For example, While James speaks of figures such as Tolstoy living in a universe two stories deep, by which he means a response to the universe that entails embrace of good within the shadow of persistent sadness, the moralist, absurdist tendencies of Du Bois suggest even this stance as surrender to illusion, a denial of the persistent effect of disregard that overwhelms all else. As witness to this, one need only call to mind the figure John found in Chapter 13 of Souls, John returns home with lucidity regarding the plight of African Americans, only to be met by persistent disregard from whites and, and resistance from his community, which selects religious delusion over mature analysis and confrontation. In the end, neither his lucidity nor the religious encasement chosen by the African American community protects from the racial dynamics in the town. For James, religious conversion as one way of addressing the sick soul involves a binding of the once divided self, a resolution, we might say, of doubleness through the centrality of certain ideals once neglected. If conversion is substantial resolution, souls rejects its likelihood. Instead, Du Bois proclaims the two warring ideals defining double consciousness never merge successfully a truer self never develops, but instead a longing, a wish for meaning as wholeness, endures. There's a clear goal, according to Du Bois, it's this, to be a co-worker in the kingdom of culture to escape both death and isolation, but it remains unfulfilled. The problem-soul posture shares with the sick soul personality a vision of the world that lacks easy comfort, and in this way, attention to James helps to clarify the perception of the world as marked by racial disregard Du Bois seeks to highlight through the problem soul. This positioning against the world in and of itself hasn't fostered negative response in that, for critics such as Cornel West, proper perspective does not involve denial of the tragic quality of life. To the contrary, it's vital. However, what West finds missing is a creative tension between the tragic and the comic. Du Bois' perception of the human condition is lacking because he does not consider sufficiently the current context in which even ultimate purpose and objective order are called into question. And he does not fully grasp what West calls the sheer absurdity of the human condition. West assumes a type of fatalism in Du Bois, stemming in part from his failure to engage adequately, instead of paternalistically and dismissively, the life and resource of the larger African American community. He is outside the circle of concern, so to speak, and therefore lacks a robust safeguard. Without ritual, cushioned by community or sustained by art, West cautions, we are urged towards suicide or madness. Yet, this community, complete with the resources West names, has also produced redemptive suffering models of response to absurdity of life that challenge persistent struggle, and instead, of, and instead promote a radical sense of the future that easily sacrifices the present and kills, so to speak, the possibility of a robust anthropology by diminishing human responsibility and accountability in the world, as well as by giving misery such high status." The ritual and artistic expression within African-American communities, as Du Bois knows, is not always inclined towards self-care and collective advancement. On closer inspection, the underlying issue, it seems to me, for West is a lack of attention to the absurdity of the world or a disciplined diagnosis of the historical moment. Not really those two, instead he challenges what he perceives as Du Bois's failure to find comfort and resolution within the collective life of the least of these. Du Bois appears elitist and exceptionalist in orientation, and this inability to immerse himself fully in the rich cultural currents of black everyday life, writes West, constitutes the issue, because without this immersion, a sense of the tragic comic quality of life is impossible to grasp. Hence, the turn to classical education was betrayed by the theory of the talented tenth. Economic inclusion was marred by the tenacious nature of white supremacy. Cultural production, as Du Bois presents it, fails to do more than offer an apology for African-American genius. And political participation was short-circuited by an enlightenment worldview championing yet another form of elitism as the impulsive and irrational masses are guided into public life by their superiors. I argue, however, the cultural world of the everyday isn't really foreign to Du Bois. The difference with West is Du Bois's unwillingness to see in this resource a sustainable aid. This disagreement notwithstanding, even limited attentions to West's critique points in the direction of the sensibility I really want to highlight. While not framing absurdity in the more or less absurdist manner I have in mind, West does promote implicitly the utility of this vocabulary in connection to Du Bois's perspective in souls. Consideration of the Negro problem, particularly in religious terms, entails a sense of hope funneled through faith and cosmic assistance while the problem soul connotes a hope, not hopeless, but unhopeful. Du Bois mentions this unhopeful posture in relationship to, the de- uh, to death as physical demise but it is just as applicable to the depth of disregard or ontological irrelevance, also marking encounter with the cultural climate associated with the world. To be unhopeful within this cultural climate raises the question of pain and suffering, but not as a matter of theodicy. Rather, the problem-soul posture rejects grand unity of purpose, and this entails a stance much more in line with Camus's sense of struggle in life without appeal. Paul Taylor points towards this sense of struggle without resolution in Du Bois prior to his departure from Ghana. Du Bois, according to Taylor, offered to a friend what we might take as his final assessment of the perspectives of social justice. Chin up and fight on, Du Bois says, but realize that American Negroes can't win. Sharing West's desire to avoid passivity or fatalism, Taylor makes an effort to recast this statement as not a general denouncement of struggle as having a useful outcome instead. He reads Du Bois' pronouncement as an endorsement of Pan-African striving for justice as opposed to the more geographically limited push for civil rights in the United States. Taylor argues, yes, Du Bois says, American Negroes can't win but he doesn't say Negroes as a global population can't win. The more expansive framing of the global African community involves rejection of America as the standard, and instead urges embrace of pan-African allegiances. Beside the mode of revision offered by Paul Taylor, melancholy as response to loss is a manner in which some have attempted to capture the tone of Du Bois' diagnosis. Jonathan Flatley, for whom it can be a positive, argues melancholy is produced for Du Bois through white supremacy. Flatly discusses melancholia in relationship to Du Bois as a mode of disclosure, a look into the sources of melancholia, thereby producing a historical sense of the source of loss and an interest in the world. Yet, I'm not convinced this is the best way to frame the problem. soul. What would constitute the prior object and initial situation against which the new situation is measured? Loss involves a change in posture, mood, and perception of experience premised on something desired and once present, now gone and therefore mourned. What Du Bois articulates has little if anything to do with properly or improperly addressing loss. If anything. The African American is culturally constituted by a mode of misplaced nostalgia, consistent with the manner in which Camus captures United States self-understanding more broadly. And as such, African Americans, at least as culturally or discursively constructed, are without the capacity for loss. The assumed sense of longing or loss is better described as existential disruption, effective, geographical and physical ramifications tied to the failures of reconstruction. Du Bois doesn't point to an original moment of wholeness, a location once beyond the grasp of racial disregard, no. He poses the question of unendingly warring identities within a cultural climate of violent difference shaped by vivid awareness of absurdity akin to this consideration. What do objects of history lose or gain? It's true that the spirituals or sorrow songs, as Du Bois names them, hint at what might be thought of as a sense of longing. Of course, there is individual loss through the tactics of white supremacy and Jim Crow, but even this isn't connected to a remembered past of equality in the United States now longed for. Jim Crow over against enslavement produces not melancholy, but a deep sense of racial disregard as already and always, speaking not to loss, but to the overwhelming presence of white supremacy impinging on every dimension of collective life. Furthermore, religious melancholy, as James defines lost meaning, doesn't apply either. Melancholy as a mode of personal sin or as fear generated by the radical evil marking the world as lacking grand significance and devoid of meaning, all tied together by our modern style as Charles Taylor frames it, do no better a job capturing the sensibility of the problem soul. These two, personal sin and fear, suggest longing for an alternate, a different relationship to the world that is missing but plausible. By means of this posture known as the problem soul, personal sin is moot, and fear is an intimate dimension of disregard. There's no ritualization of loss. Available to the problem soul are only thought and habits of revolt without resolution, a resolve only to recognize the absurdity of encounter with the world. Charles Long might be said to come closest to offering a useful way to position Du Bois in relationship to melancholia. Long in his 1975 William James lecture reflects on varieties and questions the ability of James's once born and twice born framework to, as he puts it, bear the weight of the cultural experiences of the Americas, much less the experiences of humankind. The values and meanings accorded life within a context of racial disregard require recognition of a different source for the twice-born soul. It is this different source Long means to address through his discussion of the negative element of religious experience. Moreover, through religious experience, the oppressed push back towards primordial experience and histories. That critique of modernity and its metaphysical categories used to recreate the other. This second creation or reinvention is for long what Du Bois intends by double consciousness. Furthermore, unlike the dread experienced by James and his father, the dread Du Bois chronicles in the essay on the faith of the fathers might be said to involve reevaluation of or better yet the compromised stability of the second creation, opening the possibility of a prior meaning as the persistent separateness of conflicting identities impinges. Religious experience within the context of a new formulation of community addresses a sense of first creation, the self prior to the logic of modern racial disregard as a new form of human consciousness. And the political struggles within these newly formed communities speak to the forging of space in which to exercise this new consciousness. It is a crawling back for Long, away from the second creation to a first, which is loss of destructive significations of identity and meaning. This loss, then, is rejection of the second creation, the modern articulation of limited metaphysical black worth. Despite Long's modifications, A feeling of loss assumes integrity of a past experience foreign to African-Americans as a consequence of anti-black racism and its structuring of discourse. Perhaps this is why the cargo cults, to which Long points, entail unfulfilled resolution sought through material acquisition. The religion of the oppressed, as I read Long, offers conversion, one grounded in the historical consequences of American culture, but conversion nonetheless. Yet for Du Bois, there is no possibility of conversion. There is no salvation, no, not even the type to which long points. And as described in Souls, the religion of African-Americans involves not a crawling back, but rather an embrace of the second creation, an unwillingness to confront structures of disregard, but instead thinking theologically about second creation as a mode of theodicy resolved through address of personal sin and the mysteries of God's will. On the micro level, with the death of his son, there is a poetic quality offered through personal pain and angst that lends a softer meaning to the misery of disregard. Du Bois says, I saw his breath beat quicker and quicker pause. And then his little soul leapt like a star that travels in the night and left a world of darkness in its train. Still, this brief glimpse of transcendence through removal from the cultural climate by means of death is more often silenced by Du Bois, the scientific thinker, who, as he acknowledges, longs for work and who pants for a life full of striving. A similar and persistent sense of the world as suffering emerges for Richard Wright through family. My mother's suffering, he writes in Black Boy, grew into a symbol in my mind, gathering to itself all the poverty, the ignorance, the helplessness, the painful, baffling, hunger written days and hours, the restless moving, the futile seeking, the uncertainty, the fear, the dread, the meaningless pain and the endless suffering. With these examples in place, what James says about evil is applicable, I think. The moral arrangements of life are filled with moments in which radical evil gets its inning and takes its solid turn. However, as Du Bois outlines the cultural climate, this turn seems perpetual. The silence with which our requests and questions are met entails persistent absurdity. While absurdity informs souls, it's presented graphically much later in Dusk of Dawn where Du Bois writes, it is, is though one looking out from a dark cave in a side of an impending mountain sees the world passing and speaks to it, speaks courteously and persuasively Showing them how these entombed souls are hindered in their natural movement, expression, and development. And how their loosening from prison would be a matter not simply of courtesy, sympathy, and help to them, but aid to all the world. One talks on evenly and logically in this, but notices that the passing throng does not even turn its head. And if it does, glances curiously and walks on. For Richard Wright, it isn't a cave, but rather the underworld, the sewer. Still, the sentiment is the same. In the short story, The Man Who Lived Underground, this is where the protagonist finds himself after a confrontation with the police, reinforces his status as problem. From the sewer, he sees but isn't seen. He discovers and observes the behavior of those who live above him. And in the process, he recognizes the futility of their endeavors and the pervasive misery that marks their lives. Du Bois notes that the cave as a tomb and Fred Daniels, the protagonist in Wright's story, sees and feels death around him. From the baby floating by in the sewer water to the work of the funeral parlor, the dead animals in the butcher's shop, the suicide of the security guard. What humans seek, they cannot have. This is evidence for Daniels as he watches people in a type of church worship service, also familiar to Du Bois. Observing them was painful, more penetrating than the ache of his body because he knew what they refused to acknowledge. A deeper pain write, narrates, induced by the sight of those black people groveling and begging for something they could never get, just churned in him. There's no comfort no assurance offered. Lucidity, like other conceptual maps offered in souls, is doubled. In addition to lucidity regarding the workings of the world in general, Du Bois also alludes to lucidity in terms of a type of clairvoyance, allowing African-Americans to see both their context and that of whites. The latter is a deep observation. The most telling presentation of this lucidity is in the souls of white folk an essay in Dark Water, Voices from Within the Veil. There Du Bois writes, I see these souls, undressed and from the back and side. I see the working of their entrails. I know their thoughts, and they know that I know. And yet as they perch and strut and shout and threaten, crouching as they clutch at rags of facts and fancies to hide their nakedness, they go twisting, flying by my tired eyes and I see them ever stripped, ugly, human. Rejection of a source of appeal deconstructs the religion of whiteness and exposes its human inner workings. A theodical formulation of collective life advantaging whiteness is replaced with an anthropodicy of fragility. We, Du Bois concludes, look at him clearly with world war eyes and saw simply a human thing, weak, pitiable, and cruel, even as we are and were. These supermen and world-mastering demigods listen, however, to no low tongues of ours, even when we point it silently to their feet of clay. Nella Larson's central figure Helga Crane in the novel Quicksand, consistent with the problem-soul posture, finds strength in the awareness of the absurd, Never could she, Crane acknowledges to the reader, recall the shames and often the absolute horrors of the black man's existence in America without the quickening of her heart's beating and a sensation of disturbing nausea. It was too awful. The sense of dread of it all was almost a tangible thing in her throat. Nausea for Larson doesn't connote merely a biological discomfort, but rather there are larger considerations tied to metaphysics. Crane names the absurd. I want to frame this naming in terms of Camus, who understands the similarity between Sartre's sense of nausea and what he, Camus, means by absurdity. Think of Crane's response to others and herself in light of Camus' framing of the absurd. He writes... This discomfort in the face of man's own inhumanity, this incalculable tumble before the image of what we are, this nausea, as a writer of today calls it, is also the absurd. There is no grand unity capable of providing meaning within a cold world. The cruel and unrelieved suffering had beaten down her protective wall of Artificial faith in the infinite wisdom and in the mercy of God, writes Larson, for had she not called in her agony on him, had he not heard, why? Because she knew now he wasn't there, didn't exist. But what is sacrificed in order to pretend an answer when none is given by the world, when there is no God to aid the inquiry? Crane is lucid in life, marked only by confrontation and a no to her circumstances. This this is her situation, her entanglement in a cultural climate of contempt, presenting a world that is foreign, hostile, violent, death-dealing. In her words, only scorn, resentment, and hate remained, and ridicule. Life wasn't a miracle, a wonder. It was, for Negroes at least, only a great disappointment, something to be gotten through as best one could. No one was interested in them or helped them. God, (laughs) her family, her community, and her country offered Crane rest, but not resolution. For Du Bois, like James, the ever-present threat of death doesn't stimulate a sense of melancholy. Instead, death is simply a dimension of what it is to live within the context of the cultural climate of post-Civil War United States. All this Du Bois captures with a simple question. How does it feel to be a problem? Deeply aware of the manner in which the physical can betray, things including our bodies can forsake us, and life can entail a challenging quality, Du Bois, Wright, and Larson respond to the threat of death. Du Bois, particularly in terms of double consciousness, can tend to romanticize this body, highlighting its dogged strength, over against the destructive qualities of the cultural climate. Still, he recognizes with Alexander Crummel and Berghard Du Bois' son, the fragility of embodied bodies. The body, a compromised form, is subject to death. And the problem soul never loses sight of this dimension of the cultural climate's effect. Awareness of our circumstances in the world helps to avoid what Daniels laments as he views, unobserved by them, people in a movie theater. Watching them laugh at the screen, he recognizes they are unaware of the manner in which they mock themselves, shouting and yelling at the animated shadows of themselves. To the extent they lack awareness, they were children sleeping in their living and awake in their dying. All Daniels encountered as well as the items he stole offered life no meaning. In his hands, money became wallpaper in his cave. Watches, wall ornaments, and diamonds, floor covering in his hole below the surface. Life, death, and the material t- trail between them did not constitute a relationship to the world. While not exactly sleeping in her living and awaken or dying, Crane does wrestle with metaphysical and existential dilemmas posed by the intertwined structures of being and not being. That is to say, both Crane and Daniels, like Du Bois, are sensitive to physical demise, sleeping and their living, as well as metaphysical death awake and their dying, or ontological relevance tied to the cultural climate guiding the historical moment. Religion and its theological probing of the world, for Larson through Crane, Wright through Daniels, and for Du Bois through at least the story of John, offer nothing substantive. Theological arguments don't wrestle meaning from a silent world. Instead, religion prompts what Wright calls eternity anxiety. The secret to existence, despite the efforts of the religious folks encountered, is not found in the working of relationship to a cosmic something. John facing those in his church knows this. And the religious leadership of even a cultural giant like Cromwell fares no better. One might think of the situation this way. The wish against wishes found in some spirituals, at least as they have come to us, is quickly countered by the response of the blues. Both speak a word regarding relationship, connection between questioning humans that acknowledges the individual, but in relationship to others also confronting the world. This, one could say, is small, cold comfort, life is drowning in suffering, Crane who is slowly dying as she gives life to child after child, writes hunger unfulfilled in a hostile world, and Camus champion of an elucidate Du Bois' diagnosis. In a sense, the task is to confront the world and not be bent permanently and tamed by the weight of its silence. As Sisyphus prepares to continue his unending task of rolling his stone as punishment from the Greek gods, he, Camus narrates, reaches a point at which the stone is rolling down the hill, and he turns to follow it, to undertake his task yet again. He knows the labor ahead of him and its perpetual nature, but this doesn't break him. Rather, this awareness is his resolve and fixes his posture toward the cultural climate, marking his existential situation. Sisyphus' stance and the posture called the problem soul are similar. He has his gods to challenge through his persistence. Although this does nothing to change his lot, he gains no quarter in the process. The lucidity, the awareness of his condition, and the nature of his relationship to what is beyond him speaks the problem soul. It is his posture toward the world in the telling both Camus and Du Bois are sure. If Sisyphus is Camus' absurd hero, the posture toward the world that defines him is captured at the turn of the 20th century by Du Bois' problem soul. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much uh, for that absolutely beautiful lecture. You know, you mentioned uh, Gordon Kaufman as your advisor when you were here uh, receiving your doctorate. And, uh, you know, knowing Gordon, I can imagine that he would uh, love to come and say uh, the student has become the teacher. That's a beautiful work. Um, We'll take questions. There are microphones, I think, on either side. So we ask that you uh, wait for that so that uh, they can be on the recorded version of uh, this talk. And I'll let you recognize people. Thank
2: you. This is easy. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Thank you so much, um, but it's kind of bleak in the end. So uh, can, you, can you give us a little more hope than what you've left us with, or is that really where you're going to conclude?
2: Well, we disagree. I don't see it as bleak. I, if we have to talk in terms of hope, For me, the great value, one of the reasons I turn to Camus is that there is something substantive here. This man says that, but he's also involved in the war effort, right? He's with the resistance. He's doing a kind of work that the existentialists aren't doing, right? So he is about the business. And so I find within this sort of framework, something valuable in the proposition that we do because we can not because outcomes are guaranteed. This may change nothing, but it's what we can do. Within that, I find something that is deeply alive, something that is just deeply motivating, and if we use the language of hope, it's, this is where the hope is found. We do this work, not because it will change anything, but because we can. In part, this is my turn from from the kind of theological propositions with which I grew up in Buffalo, New York, right? You do because at the end, you're gonna get something, right? Either here or there, but you're gonna get something. You do because there are outcomes guaranteed. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. This, it seems to me, is a, a, a much more difficult proposition. But I wouldn't call it bleak.
0: Tony, this a wonderful lecture. Thank you for that,
2: man. Um, So I, I was thinking in regard to your invocation of Sisyphus and Camus, and thinking about Du Bois talking at the end of The Souls of White Folk about the white Prometheus, right? And, he, and, he, and, he, and his defiance to the white Prometheus is what? I am black. Because he, he says, you know, why do you eat your own vitals? <laughs> you know, like why, you know? and, and so can you square that defiance, that Du Boisian defiance, to the, Camus, Sisyphus? The fact that this punishment doesn't break him, this is the intent, right, that he has defied the gods, that this is the man who doesn't want to die, right? He tricks them into letting him back into the land of the living because he says he's going to reprimand his wife for not giving him a proper burial, and he tricks them, yeah? So this punishment is meant to break him. And the fact that it doesn't break him, it seems to me that's the moment of commonality, that it does not break him. Right? and how does, how does Camus end that really short essay in the volume? Right? He gives us this, one must imagine Sisyphus happy. There's something in that lucidity, yeah. which is what we get. Often I've, I've turned, rather than to Sisyphus, I've turned to Nimrod. I think Nimrod gets a raw deal. I think there is something extremely compelling about Nimrod, doesn't matter that the tower fails, that's irrelevant, but the ability of this person to harness the imagination and the energy of the masses for me is deeply compelling.
3: Yeah, I want to thank you for a brilliant presentation. Anytime I hear you, I'm always pushed because you and I are very much in a similar zone. You may not call it bleak, but it's certainly tragic comic, and it's certainly, well, I can't use the word Trump anymore. It forecloses, uh, <laughs> it certainly forecloses Christian consolation and so yes. forth. But I, I, I want you to, just very briefly, give us a sense of your sensibility, let's say vis-a-vis Du Bois, when Du Bois is late Victorian, he's Edwardian, he's a disciple of Goethe, and he never meets the challenge of Kafka, of Chekhov, of Beckett, he doesn't engage modernist despair as a result of World War I and so forth. Now myself, I begin with the blues, which is already tragic comic, and therefore I resonate with Chekhov and Beckett, but with a Christian sensibility. I hold on to the Christian stories, but it is very, very threadbare because I'm in the same space that you are. How do you give us a brief genealogy of your own wrestling with your connection to Sisyphus as rendered mm-hmm. by Camus or Nimrod or the ways in which mm-hmm. you do continually have a praxis. Because I mean, Beckett did more for resistance than a lot of the yeah. Christian French yeah. folk did. Yeah. And that's very important to keep in mind. He's, he's risking his life every day. So he's doing something yeah. in, the, in the face of the catastrophe of evil of his day of Nazism yeah. and so on. But give us just a brief a sense of your sensibility vis-a-vis a Du Bois, let's say on the one hand, or even my own little humble witness in terms of, uh, of, of truncated uh, Chekhovian Christian sensibility in the light of overwhelming
2: catastrophe. Du Bois taught me the value of open questions. Yeah. That there is, there, there there's something, there's a usefulness in critically engaging Right. And, the, and the critical thought is valuable, regardless of the answer you come up with. The, the fact that you probe the world has deep significance. Right? So that I take away. One of the things, one of the many things I learned from you is the, the value of the spirituals right? and the value of the blues. But really coming of age in New York and in, in Harlem, for me, it was hip hop. What the blues did for you, hip hop did for me. Right? Just think about this early development. right? It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going. There is a perception of the world that isn't defeated, right? That they understand the condition of life, but they don't surrender to it. They confront the world without blinking. They don't flinch. And for me, that was empowering. That was just it gave me something beyond a a grammar and vocabulary for speaking to the world, regardless of whether or not I got an answer. They gave me a way of framing the questions. They gave me a way of seeing the world, right? Seeing a world that I had not been open to in Buffalo and hadn't been open to at Bridge Street AME Church. But they gave me a way to see this world. And some of my dissatisfaction was premised upon seeing the world as I had never seen it before and and giving it my theological pronouncements without effect. I'm the youth minister at Bridge Street AME Church, and my kids are dying, literally dying. And the language I offered them did not give them a way to capture the world in which they lived. So I needed something else. I named myself a humanist, and it took some time to come to grips with what that means. And there's so much of this contemporary humanist project that I don't find particularly compelling. I, I'm not deeply persuaded by the new atheists. I understand the significance of deconstruction, but you take something away from folks, you got them a soft place to land and simply telling them that their God is nonsense is not that soft place to land, right? That they don't fully appreciate the need for community, the, the ways in which we have to ritualize life. Right? And so part of this has meant for me trying to figure out ways to ritualize life, to confront life without flinching, to, to see a beauty in what is typically not understood as having that kind of aesthetic quality. And and both inside the classroom and outside in the world, it seems to me I have a limited set of skills, a limited set of talents. But if I can't do anything else, I can encourage folks to think critically and help them develop effective communication strategies so that in one sense, they're able to confront the world and make demands of themselves. If there's nothing else, they can make demands of themselves. And on some level, just being able to articulate what they're saying. So some of the work I do um, at at Rice is through the Center for Engaged Research and Collaborative Learning. And part of our commitment is to work with high school students, but not the high school students who are going to Episcopal or St. John's. They're gonna be all right. right? We work with high school students from 11 of the more economically disadvantaged schools. 70% of the students in these schools qualify for free lunch. They qualify for free lunch. So you know what this means. And they, can, they encounter a world that is inhospitable and they don't have a way of thinking about this world. So one of the things we do is a, an essay contest, right? There's a little bit of money and, and we pay for them to take the SAT course, but what's more value to me is the sense of ownership over the problems in the world that they develop, right? Every year the question revolves around Houston, but Houston within the context of a larger dilemma. And their job within the 750 word essay is to give us a way to address it not necessarily resolve it, but to attack it, right? To say no to it. And the way they light up when these words hit the page, it's just, if I can't give them anything else, I can help them think critically about the world. It seems to me this is part of, this is part of the gift we share. I got this from Du Bois, I got this from Preston Williams, I got this from you, I mean, there are a variety of folks from whom I got this. But it it started with my grandmother, she sent me off to New York, she sat me at the kitchen table, her house on Northland and and said, move through the world knowing your footsteps matter. Right, and for my grandmother, that was a way of saying, look, this really isn't just about you, right? That is not simply about securing your own comfort. You've got to give something, right? You've got to give some move through the world knowing your footsteps matter. And so for me, the challenge has been how do you give and what do you give in a world that is non-responsive, right? What do you give and how do you give it? If I'm true to my own sensibilities and actually believe that we won't necessarily wipe any of this out, what do you give and how do you give it within that context has been the challenge.
4: Prior to coming here, we were in a kind of Du Bois seminar, and uh, we were talking about freedom, and uh, I can't get that out of my mind, so I want to kind of bring that previous discussion into, into this discussion. So I, I wonder whether you see the connection between the notion of being unbreakable and being free? And um, I want you to give me kind of a positive argument for that connection between the two, and I'm going to tell you my worry. Um, so in some ways, I see that there's a difference between um, having a posture towards the world and having a position in it, and I think that as far as desiring, I, I would not be satisfied with just the posture itself. And, and I know you don't want us to think about, you know, the end goal or whatever. But just satisfa- satisfaction, I just don't want a posture. I also want a position. Um, so that's one worry. Um, and then another worry is, in some ways, I think, uh, particularly in the contemporary times. We praise being unbreakable, and I think that praise upscores the the structural climate that makes it so that we have to aim for that. So I just wonder if you could give me a positive mm-hmm. argument about the connection between freedom
2: and I can give you an argument. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite certain what to do with freedom. I know what to do with struggle. I know what to do with striving. I'm not quite certain what to make of freedom. And I'm with you. I'm. I'm, I'm what I'm concerned with is not simply a posture towards the world. My argument, though, is that this posture towards the world informs and influences, it shapes the kind of actions you take. Right? And, and my argument tonight, in part, has been that we've, we've misread Du Bois, that this doubling takes place throughout, and that we fixated on the Negro problem and have not given attention to that second half of the dimension, the one that Du Bois isn't quite certain how to resolve the problem soul, the Negro as problem. And, and, and from my vantage point, what we've ended up with is a sense of the work. Socioeconomic and political transformation, we got a sense of the work based upon the problem, uh, the Negro problem, but we've not gotten a sense of what Du Bois wants to tell us about posture towards the world, the cultural climate in which we find ourselves. And, and, and so I want to give some attention to that. But again, I would agree with you, it's not simply the posture, but my argument is, THE POSTURE REALLY DETERMINES THE ACTIONS. I, I THINK WHERE WE DISAGREE NOW AND WILL PROBABLY DISAGREE TOMORROW AND THE DAY AFTER IS TO WHAT EXTENT THIS NEEDS TO BE OUTCOME DRIVEN. FOR ME, this, THIS DOES NOT NEED TO BE OUTCOME DRIVEN. IT SHOULD NOT BE OUTCOME DRIVEN. IT'S ABOUT THE STRUGGLE ITSELF. It's THE STRUGGLE IS PERPETUAL. I'VE BEEN SAYING THAT FOR 13 YEARS NOW THAT it's IT'S ABOUT it's about perpetual rebellion, yeah. not the outcomes.
4: Can, can one be free in being unbreakable? Well, on the outcomes, right?
2: yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not. I'm not certain what to do with freedom. So you clearly have a you have a sense of what that entails. So share that with me.
4: No, I, I don't. I don't. Um, I don't. I don't think I do. Um, I mean, in some ways, I guess, uh, my intuitions is that, I mean, just the fact that I am unbreakable or this thing did not break me in some ways um, expresses some sense of freedom, right? Someone was not able to dominate me, whether that's dominating my emotions or dominating my choices or my resolve. And so in some way, I was able to act, exercise some type of freedom in making the decision to be unbreakable or in the way in which I view the world. And so in some ways, I guess, that's where I can mm-hmm. see one aspect of the connection in some sort without even focusing on, on outcomes in some way. Um, but that's my immediate thought.
2: Yeah, my take isn't so bright and cheery, right? That <laughs> does this sound I think, bright and cheery? <laughs> for me, it does. <laughs> but I, I think we are already and always impinged upon. Yeah. And the question for me is, are we aware of that lucidity? Are we willing to say no to it despite our ability to end it or not end it? Are we willing to say, no to it, to struggle against it, regardless of what happens based upon that struggle. But we are already and always impinged upon.
5: Um, So I'm wondering, kind of related to this notion of outcome and action and not caring about the outcome. So, and this is also sort of a practical question. I work as um, a Hindu chaplain at Wellesley College and so um, this past week, we were reading the Bhagavad Gita together, and um, we were just reading the passage about, um, and this is a passage that Gandhi loved, and that I think Dr. King also really appreciated, which was um, working without a focus on the result, and like doing the action, and this emphasis on action without emphasis on the fruits of that action. And so that was just something that I was reminded of as you were speaking. Um, and I guess what my question is, is so your grandma said to you, your footsteps matter, right? And you were talking about kind of finding a language that speaks to the young folks you work with who are literally dying, right? And I'm wondering, how do, you, like, what language do you use to speak to the young folks that you work with about this notion of the problem soul?
2: My goal is to help them develop their own way of articulating their world, right? So, I'm 52 years old, right? So, some of what I understand as culturally relevant language <laughs> doesn't really make sense to some of these young people. I'm we, we are living in different cultural worlds, right? I still want to pull from Sanford and Son. <laughs> and, you know, right, I, you know I, they're just, so my goal is to help them develop a vocabulary and grammar that is organic rather than imposing mine on them. right? That, that's really what I want to do, help them develop their own. And, and again, I, I think there are ways in which hip hop culture helps with this. I'll give you one example. I am still blown away in trying to understand no church in the wild. right? I, Kanye West or Jay-Z, it doesn't matter to me whether this was intended or not. That's irrelevant to me. There are ways in which just that piece dismantles all of the markers of authority that we have accepted as solid, right? What's a mob to a king? What's a king to a god? What's a god to a non-believer who don't believe in anything? It's all, they dismantle this. There's just something brilliant in that. Or or Kanye West, we formed a new religion, right? No sin as long as there's permission. I'll stop (laughs) quoting there. Some of you know the rest, yeah? yeah? But for me, there is just something vital and vibrant there, or Chance the Rapper, or Kendrick Lamar, he's obvious, yeah? There are, there are ways in which hip-hop culture is probing the world and, and demonstrating a, a, a deep dissatisfaction with the technologies and strategies that they have inherited. Right? And I think you can see this outside of hip-hop as well, that from my vantage point, one of the beautiful dimensions of the Black Lives Matter movement is the way in which it has pushed against traditional markers of collective struggle. The church doesn't run it, right? There's a different way in which this is taking place, A kind of flexibility that I, I think is engaging and inspiring, regardless of whether or not it fundamentally shifts how we live in this country, the way in which they say no, I think is creative, imaginative, and inspiring. You mean my, my take on the problem soul? Because
0: there seems to be kind of, I mean, not a an valorization of the struggle,
2: but just like because the result are yeah. too struggle in the first place. Well, yeah, I, I understand the problem soul is a kind of, it's a, it's a sensibility, right? As you, you might think of it as a kind of mood um, that can generate certain forms of engagement, certain forms of of activity, and I don't really use the language of liberation anymore for a variety of reasons. We could chat about that another time, but I, I tend not to use that anymore. But for me, this problem soul is Du Bois trying to suggest a particular mood, right? a kind of mood that is conditioned by this cultural climate, by the world as he encounters it at the turn of the century. And so this, this mood again will highlight Certain modes of response, but what I'm interested in is that mood. And here tonight, I'm interested in that mood, not the particular forms of response. Just what is this sensibility that Du Bois is pushing that we've underexplored? What is it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I guess yeah, I to say more. <laughs> you got me thinking about um, the language that. guess what language, how would you shape this language to speak to someone
1: who, I don't know, for some reason was, was not able to, to struggle in the ways that Du Bois says that we should struggle?
2: In? Well, but again, I'm interested in what he understands as the proper posture towards the world, the sensibility that informs, not the modes of action he endorses in the book because they all fail, right? Every form of activism within souls fails. So I'm not really pushing that, and my suggestion would be if this posture makes sense, right, if the way in which I'm framing the problem soul and trying to extend it makes sense, then the question becomes, based upon where you are in your world, based upon the range of experiences that are your experiences, what, what are ways what are the ways in which to talk about that that makes sense, right? How do you talk about that in a way that is true to who you are? I, I, I don't have a vocabulary to suggest, right? What? Sure, sure. I think we
0: can take one more question. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I wanted to ask you to go back to the question that's behind the, the sensibility of the problem soul and the question of how does it feel to be a problem? Mm-hmm. And do you, can you say, like, return that to speech, that, it, uh, that it's a question? And is it, a, like, who would you say that it's addressed to? Is du-, du Bois, like, speaking to himself? Is Du Bois speaking to other people? Uh, other African-Americans, is he speaking to uh, white people? Do you know how it feels to be me? So it's just a question of the sensibility may shift according to when we have the question in speech and it's addressed to someone. Uh, And So do you have a sense of who is it addressed to?
2: Well, if we take that as a framing for the book, I think he gives us a, a sense of how to answer that in that last paragraph at the very end of the book. It's the gentle reader, God the reader. This is the per- he wants God the reader to take this, wrestle with this material, and not let this argument be lost. So I'm not gonna tell you whether it's black or white. He says, This gentle reader, God the reader, this is to whom he's making an appeal at the very end. After he's talked about the spirituals, he's making an appeal to this gentle reader, this God the reader, to take these words and let these live. That's how he ends it, so that's how I'm gonna answer your question. (laughs) What What a great place to end. Thank you.